Hey everyone, welcome to Property Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. There's Andy Wood. We're never going to get this, are we? We're never going to get well, it right. Do you, you do realize when I talk first, I leave a space for you to introduce yourself. You do. Every I'm time too greedy. you talk first, I'm you too- say my name as I'm trying to say it. And there's literally no way to solve this except to have this discussion on the podcast right now and decide once and for all. When, when you talk first, what is the protocol? Okay. I'm too intro greedy, clearly. <laughs> I jump on Just you. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'll, I'll leave a space next time. Okay. I will leave that space. Are we leaving this in the I podcast? will do it. Well, let's let's continue with the intro. Let's get right into this because we've got... It's a return guest, but it's been a while. has been a while. It has been a while. Last time I was here, it was outside and covered in Spanish tile and there was a pool. There was. Better times. Yeah. That's back when I had friends. It's a funny thing. All you had to do is run a festival and have a pool and suddenly you have friends in LA. Yes. Um, an important part of growing up is stopping having friends, though. Yeah, that's true. Soup, that is the voice of incredibly funny comedian and writer and TV host, host of Talk Show, The Game Show, which is a fantastic and very funny show, and now author, now the writer of the brand new about-to-come-out memoir, My Life as a Goddess, it's Guy Branham. Hello, good to be here. Thank you for plugging all of my stuff. That was very nice of you. Yeah, absolutely, but the book's the main one, because that's about to come out. The book is important. Pre-order today. Forward by Mindy Kaling. Forward by Mindy Kaling. If you want the audiobook, she read it on the audiobook. Oh, awesome. I honestly didn't think she would read it on the audiobook. I was like, you're in New York, you got a kid in a movie? I understand why you wouldn't. She was like, no, I'll get it done. She specifically read her intro. Yes. Her forward. I, I had a mutual friend of ours come and read it, and then we did we did skits like it was a rap album from 2002 <laughs> that I was like, this will be added content. And then Mindy was like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> People love added content. What's the problem? Um, so yeah, July thirty first. That's available, but you can pre order now over on Amazon. Happy Prime Day, everybody! How, uh, how it's so exciting day? to have Prime Day. How, uh, what, what did Prime Day mean to you as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I we were Jewish, so I didn't grow up believing in Bezos Claus. Um, <laughs> but all the other kids at school were like, oh, he brings boxes. And if you're good, they have packing materials in them. And if you're bad, they have other packing materials in them. I would think that coal would function as some kind of buffer for something inside a cardboard box, like some very light charcoal. Oh, can I tell you my best shipping story of the past couple of Please. Weeks? This is nothing if not a great place for shipping stories. So I, I purchased from Amazon three pounds of sour cherries, <laughs> frozen, and they came in like one of those I'm carrying an organ boxes. Uh, I but, didn't know that they even shipped things like frozen things for starters. No, it's so stupid. Uh, like, I, I made so much carbon from that. Uh, but then when it got there, there was dry ice and it was so hot in LA. And I put dry ice in front of my fan. And you're like, Guy, don't you have an air conditioner? I do. But still, dry ice in front of your fan. <laughs> oh. Like, it helps. And how long does that oh, yeah. last? Oh, it lasted like hours. It was great. Oh, nice. So you got to be, you got to cool down and also feel like you're in an Olivia Newton-John music video. <laughs> yes, I did get physical, and I have ever been mellow. Uh, we discovered through the monthly music and comedy show that I do with Brian Cook uh, that the lyrics for that, or that the song was written for 
as you could probably tell from analyzing the lyrics, it was not written for a woman. It was written for a man. Is, can, can yeah. you guess who? Let's was get physical. For? This is the the lyrics. His, his lyrics, including like, "I took you to an intimate restaurant, then to a suggestive movie." There's nothing else to talk about unless it's horizontally. It's not a woman's song. Think hang about who. Hang on, I'll give, give you a couple of the other uh, lyrics here as well. Rod Stewart. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Did you get That's that exactly in one? Who it was for. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I was like Elton John, and then I was like, "No wait, guy, use your whole yeah. brain to the." To an intimate restaurant, then to a suggestive movie. Oh yeah, also the host of Pop Rocket. I missed out a thing. <laughs> You've got too many things, guy. It's true. Though I have to say, sometimes I will go and spend money purchasing music that I shouldn't, and you're like, guy, why don't you steal music? And the answer is, I'm several years older than you. <laughs> uh, but Rod Stewart, I should go back get some of that. Yeah, uh, that era, like the... Uh, I should have gone to... He, he came through LA recently with Cindy Lauper. They were uh. doing a double bill. That, that's a weird... I mean, I guess he did have a lot of 80s hits, but like he could have been, in a parallel universe, he is the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. Like, right. You know, that, 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 that could have happened, and he would have been just as... Like, Robert Plant was super cheesy, and if he hadn't been in Zeppelin, he would have had probably just as cheesy a career as Rod Stewart. Well, the, the question is, like, why, why is Rod Stewart not writing musicals like Cyndi Lauper is? Did he just make enough money that he's just fine forever, even with all the supermodel ex-wives? That's a very good question. You think Cindy Lauper wouldn't have just been okay with the money she made off of? I mean, it's possible. Well, also maybe that's the answer: is that Cindy Lauper still wants to achieve things artistically, and Ron Stewart has done enough cocaine. <laughs> well, according to the internet, which is always accurate about these things, completely accurate. Rod Stewart's net worth is two hundred thirty-five million dollars. Wonderful. So he's probably all right. Yeah, he's probably so- doing okay. That may be inaccurate. So four but... Rod Stewart's equals one Kylie Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. Oh. Uh, I mean, that valuation can't be right, right? I don't know. It's lip gloss based. Um, I know. How could you be the first 19-year-old billionaire, self-made billionaire from lip gloss? I don't understand. It. Well, the, America's first African-American millionaire was a hair product lady. So when, oh, um, okay. yeah, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, when you like make a product for your own community... Like then what is Kylie Jenner's community? Women, <laughs> women who care about their lips. Okay. <laughs> like you, you were like, I'm a comedian. I will create the product of comedy festival, and that was how you made your first billion, right? That's true. That's true. That paid for all these guitars. <laughs> yeah, Andy is a ostentatious television festival magnet. <laughs> I mean, it is an ostentatious television. It's a little bit much, but I hadn't bought a TV for myself in 20 years, and I was like, I guess I'm going to get a big one. I it's know. wonderful. So, it t- t- dominates the room. And the I do love that you have a Nintendo 64 hooked up I to it. found that in a box up in Portland last month, and I was like, yep, I'm going to bring out the Mario Kart. You can get the really crisp graphics from yeah, the 64. Perfect uh, 480i graphics, yeah. So, Guy, we've already asked you about your history in science. If anyone wants to, your background in science, if you want to find that out, go... I don't even know how far back that episode was. I think it might have even been in double figures. What's your What's your guess for the date and for the episode number? I'm going to say that we did it in 2014. Matt? I, I was going to guess around the same time, and I was going to guess episode 50-something. Episode 32, back in August of 2012. Oh, whoa! Wow, early. Oh, that's beautiful. That's crazy. He was in at the beginning, ground level. But so but rather than go into that, though, before we get into the sciencey stories, last week we got onto a discussion, and I, I just want to get your perspective on this, because I know you have a legal background. Uh-huh. 
we got into a discussion about international waters and what you can and can't do in international <laughs> what waters. The advantages are. We had a couple of people write in. Like I was like, well, can you just commit any crime? In inter- is it a crime-free area? Or if you flee to international waters, are you good? And a couple of people wrote in with their comments. So one guy, Simon, was it Simon Martindale? Yep. Said, I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty sure the rule of thumb is if you murdered someone and fled to international waters, the law could no longer prosecute you. However, any law enforcement officer, or for that matter, anyone angry about the murder could find you (laughs) and pretty much do whatever they wanted in revenge. If your body then washed up on someone's shoreline, it would be up to that nation's law enforcement agency to prosecute any wrongdoings. I'd also like to point out that it would be virtually impossible to live entirely in international waters. You'd need to subsist entirely on fish or resort to piracy, at which point the US Navy blows you out of the waters. Um, and there's someone else uh, who else wrote in. Uh, this was Michael Porter, who, who finished off his email with a rumor I'd never even heard. He said, longer answer, countries tend to have laws covering crime at sea. On top of that, anything done to plan or facilitate the crime, even if the crime is committed in international waters, probably catches you under some laws. It's the same basic reason why that whole there's a part of Yellowstone that you can get away with murder in is bullshit, which I've never heard as no. an urban legend. Yeah. I had heard of that thing. <laughs> why would really? Yellowstone be? <laughs> there's a, it was, oh, I'm going to look it up now, but it's, it was some kind of zoning thing where I think it there's a part of Yellowstone National Park that for various zoning and treaty reasons is technically not part of any city or county jurisdiction. It sort of ends up being weirdly under no jurisdiction. Here there's, we go. Part there's a Vice of, article about it. Oh, you found that? Part, I just go, It just auto-completed with parts of Yellowstone with no laws. Did the Vice article come up for you or not? No, I've got... Oh, yeah, that's the third article. There's also a Vox article saying Yellowstone has a 50-square-mile zone of death where you can get away with murder. Wait, according to this Vice article from 2016, you still can. We should have done more research on this. Should we have been purging this whole time? Oh, my God. Should we be going there for some sort of... What a beautiful place to purge. Yeah. Or, like, should we be sending all of, say, our young men... 24 to 27 to just have like a, a great battle and then only the healthy ones come out now that we don't have let's wars o- where you know americans die let's officially announce there's a proud boys meetup happening in yellowstone <laughs> next yes so i i want your take on this whole thing the in, did you cover international waters in your legal training well it is covered by a thing called admiralty law okay um and we covered it very little um but i believe so it used to be that like countries could just they claimed a lot of things and there was a lot of fighting about fishing rights and then there was an international agreement um to like limit the amount that you could claim for territorial waters and the rest is international waters but i think there are a bunch of rules about like if you're on a boat then where that boat is registered that is the law so like disney there have been people killed on disney cruises and their moms go to like the american authorities and they're like no, the Bahamas is in charge of this. And she's like, she wasn't in the Bahamas. And they're like, aha. Um, so like for it to truly be international waters, you would have to be like floating on flotsam or something like that. Or have a spontaneously created ship that never started in any place that was. Uh... Hey, let's say you're on a trash heap. Let's say you're just on sort of like a trash that heap came from somewhere though. that has welded together, but also was abandoned. Okay. Um, <laughs> then that would be an, inter- an interesting situation. Here's one of my radical impractical opinions that never come up 
I don't believe in international law. International law is essentially just an agreement by a bunch of sovereign territories that they will enforce something. So the minute a sovereign territory decides it's not going to enforce something, the only way to fix that is to invade that country and overthrow it. So it's everybody agreeing is a little bit different from like a law. And one of the fun ways you can figure that out is how many times have Americans been successfully prosecuted for war crimes? Is it equal to, greater to, uh, greater than or less than the number of Americans who have committed war crimes? (laughs) And the answer is less than because it's not like the Netherlands can come over here and say, like, give us Henry Kissinger because America will just say no. Wait, so your theory is there shouldn't be international law or international law doesn't work? It's just a nonsense. It's it's an idea. It's a word that we say that is really more of a nice idea than it is a truth. I mean, in functional ways, it means that like everybody has agreed like what law is governing on a carnival cruise and stuff like that or how much of an ocean we should claim like those things are relatively well settled, but there are constantly countries who are fucking with that and there's no will, there's no way around it. It's not like the UN can send a police force. Right. What, I mean, now I'm trying to think of the last time there's been like a high profile story of somebody committing a crime, not in the U S being in the U S and then getting extradited back to like, was that Italian, uh, college, uh, uh, what's her name? God damn it. Yes. Um, <laughs> Amanda, whatever. Yeah. She was here and went back of her own accord or I mean, Italians didn't come over and grab her and bring her back for the trial. Right. Or what happened with that? I, I'm not sure. I didn't know this was my favorite murder, but like we do have, we do have agreements or things like there's this thing called comedy of law, which means that you will sort of like recognize the, like marriages and divorces of other countries and stuff like that. And we have extradition treaties. Um, and like, sometimes we agree that, agree to do that. Sometimes we don't, but that's also, that's not interna- international. It's just America yeah. saying, all right, Italy, you take care of this. Where like, once you get to international waters, unless it is of course the maximum fun podcast right. where people it's from Britain and America can participate in fun little quizzes. We've all taken part in, I believe. I, I mean if Matt if I Matt have. Kirshen hasn't, it would be very surprising to me. I have I've done it a few times but fewer times than you'd expect as one of the few British comedians who really? lives within a short drive of that studio. But I would say to anyone who is on a raft in the middle of the ocean who would like to kill the other person on the raft to eat them Go for it. Who's gonna find? Sure. Who's gonna testify against you? Um, by the way, I found the reason the why Yellowstone has this. So Yellowstone National Park is federal land. This is from the Slate article, and as a result, federal courts have exclusive jurisdiction over cl- crimes committed in Yellowstone. Yellowstone is mostly in the state of Wyoming, but small sections fall within Montana and Idaho. The federal judicial district of Wyoming covers all of Yellowstone, including the Montana and Idaho portions. The, I'm gonna have to ask Guy how to pronounce this word. Is it vicinage or vicinage? Oh, I've never seen that word before. (laughs) Okay, the vicinage, V I C I N A G E clause of the Sixth Amendment. So this is constitutional. Requires that juries in federal criminal trials be drawn from both the state and the district in which the crime was committed. Oh, so you can't impanel a jury for any crime. Yep. Because if, if you could commit it in the Idaho portion of Yellowstone, you're in the state of Idaho and the district of Wyoming. Oh. And the only area that's in both of those things is the 50-mile patch of Yellowstone that it is in Idaho. Uh, so, And since no one actually lives in that 50-mile 
patch, you can't exactly, like you say, you can't impanel a jury that lives in both the state and the district in which the crime is committed. So the argument is that since no jury could be impaneled, you could not be tried. And since you can't be tried, you go free. I mean, this is what Gilbert and Sullivan would write an operetta about. This is like, you know, a magical little quirk of the law that we should use um, to make something uh, irrational happen. Yeah. Yeah, how do you make this fun and not really dark? Well, it's also, like this this article says, and, and it pretty much like the email that we got as well, sort of says it's tough to imagine what sort of crime could be committed entirely within a remote and uninhabited 50 square mile area of Yellowstone. Remember, it would have to be committed entirely within the area, so no buying guns or computers somewhere else, so no, none of the planning okay. or conspiring or later cover-up, like any of the affiliated crimes that are... It would sort of have to be just... you. St- I guess you sort of strangle someone in that patch of land and then walk away well, I mean, and never the, do the anything place, else. The place article talks about uh, 2013, a woman pushing her newlywed husband over a cliff in Glacier National Park. So what if you just get in a lover's quarrel on a hike inside Yellowstone and it wasn't premeditated and there's no weapon, you just push someone off a cliff... Well, it it can only glacier doesn't count. It has to be this little place. Well, no, I, they were saying, but like oh. as an example of something that's like that's a possible. Scenario, yeah, the two people could start a fight. Yes. in the park, and it's and, you're only there. And once you leave, it doesn't matter. That no, I think what you we have here is the foundation of a very very good 1996 uh, Janine Garofalo, Dylan <laughs> oh McDermott. God. Holy shit, that's exa- dark comedy. Why did her name pop into my head? I s- no, because it was like these quirky little like can you believe it comedies. We don't make them anymore. Uh, is that what less than zero? No zero effect. Something with zero in. Yes, I don't know what the zero effect is about, but exactly, like that. Or exactly, the, or the, mir- the zero man or the mirror man or the something man so there are, man what there, is that there are a couple in there about to break up and then uh, there's is there is there um possibly a hot park ranger who she falls in love with but has to it's, arrest her maybe it's an early wilson brother role oh i mean <laughs> hello this isn't a movie we've just made one it's uh i mean i feel like luke is who you want in a romantic comedy but owen is who you would get for this movie I, there is an actual fucking movie we're thinking of. What is it? I'm, like, I'm going to find it very quickly in Janine's IMDb. I think it has zero in the name. Or Glimmer or Shimmer or Man. No, you're thinking of like the Glimmer, the, the, the zero effect, but there was also the something man that she was in. And this was also a period of time when I would watch any Janine Garofalo movie. Right. Okay. This is post-Reality Bites. This is like late 90s. Yes. Uh, we're looking at uh, we're looking at post-Copland is is it Clay Pigeons? Oh yes, Clay it's Pigeons. Clay Pigeons. It's she Clay plays Pigeons. a park ranger in Clay Pigeons. That's why we we're both thinking of it. Yeah. There's a cute. While well, we're talking about areas of wilderness, there's a cute quick story that we weren't going to cover, but I do like this about dingoes that was sent in by uh, Andrew McKay. A fence built to keep dingoes to keep out wild dogs has dramatically altered the Australian landscape. South Australia's, Southern Australia's. Oh good god, this word. Uh, <laughs> Strzelecki Desert is home to two very different landscapes, an area of 10-meter-high sand dunes with patches of dense woody shrubs, and just a few kilometers away, shorter and flatter dunes surrounded by sparse vegetation. The reason for the difference? Dingoes, which is the conclusion of a study published this week in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface, in which researchers compared the landscape on either side of a 5,000-kilometer-long wire mesh dingo fence. Built almost a century ago to keep Australia's wild dogs from private land and livestock, the structure appears to have altered an entire ecosystem, the team found, where the research compared drone-captured images of the dunes and vegetation cover on either side of the fence 
to historical aerial photographs taken between 1948 and 1999, they discovered there were about 60 more woody shrubs per hectare on the side of the fence with no dingoes than on the other side. The dunes on the non-dingo side... Non-dingo is one word in this article. Yeah, non-dingo side are also about 66 centimeters taller. The likely explanation, the team says, is without a top predator like the dingo, smaller hunters such as foxes and cats have flourished, decimating prey species like hopping mice and rabbits. This went the wrong way, the different way around to the way I thought. With fewer animals left to eat the plant seeds, the shrub cover has increased. The shrubs hold down sand and cause wind to skim over the tops, causing the dunes to grow taller and carving the landscape differently. Rabbits are the ones who are fucking up our environments. It... It, They're to blame for global this warming. This surprised me because I, when I first read the story, I thought it was going to be the other way around. I thought it was going to be the more dingo's shrubs, more shrubs on the dingo side because the dingoes were eating the shrub eaters. But actually, the dingoes are eating the animals that eat the shrub eaters. So it's like three flip. It's like a double flip flop. Yeah, like what a difficult game of um, I think Sim Safari it was, where you had to <laughs> balance the ecosystem. Um, yeah. I never got into the Sim games. We were, we were a Simmer? Uh, I love a nice, boring game. <laughs> nice, boring game I play against myself. Sign me up. Did those people morph into the... Is it similar? I've also never attempted a StarCraft or a WarCraft or any of those kinds of games. Oh, th- those are, like, different. Those are, real, those are real-time strategy. They're too much pressure for me. Like, when I, when I still worked for the video game network, uh, G4... We would go to like competitions and I would be like, this is scary. Um, <laughs> but I do love a nice apex predator, you know, like that's something the, you can introduce in those games that they're, would just change they're the, the coolest. Well, no, it just, uh, yeah. Like I mean, in the world, in the world, you love an apex predator. Yes. Just yeah. anywhere. But in those games, it was like being able to build, I think it was a Sim Safari. I don't know. But one where you like every time you put in a hawk, it was like, well, this mm-hmm. is all going to fall apart. <laughs> like they're just going to be eating too many things. You don't have enough shrubs to support those rabbits. It's like when you're playing Rocks of Paper and someone says, Dynamite, that wasn't in the rules. Exactly. Why would, the, why would that game exist that has that? So these dingoes, what are they going to do? Is they, there a solution? I don't think there is a solution. I think there's just like, just know that if you keep dingoes out, you're going to get more shrubs. I think a solution would be to send in the Minus Man, which was the role Owen Wilson played in 1999, <laughs> who was a cold-blooded serial killer who went around the country and chose his victims from people who complain about their lives. And Janine Garofalo was also in the Minus no, Man? No, I don't oh. know. I thought that was Cheryl Crow was. Oh. <laughs> they were a year apart. So what I'm seeing is that more Australians need to be hunting dogs. They need to be murdering dogs for sport to keep the country in yeah. balance. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the general consensus about are, are dingoes beloved as a like a you know sort of an avatar of their country, or hated because they stole that baby that one they, time? Because they stole Meryl Streep's baby. Yeah. <laughs> and is that still a thing? I mean, like, has it been long enough? Obviously, we could joke about it, but it wasn't even that long ago. But also, it's Australia. They only have like three national things, so I'm sure they're yeah. still very worried about it. So you got your Paul Hogan. You got your dingoes eating babies. Meryl's wedding. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a lot of listeners who are going to really hate this part of the conversation. <laughs> No, they love a mention. <laughs> it's just that's how polite they're the Canadians of uh, of the Southern Hemisphere. They're they really so are. They just want. They're just happy to be in the conversation. If you're an Australian and you want to be addressed in my book, my life as a goddess, it's not going to happen. But if you're a Canadian, oh boy, just <laughs> buckle your seatbelts. What do you have to say about Canadians in there? Um, I have a chapter about Canadian history. Oh. Instead of writing about my sister for a chapter, I wrote about Canada. Because Canada is much nicer than my sister. 
Um, yeah, what is the format of the book? If you can tell us a little bit about how it came to be and what the readers can expect. The book is basically just, um, it's like, uh, it's sort of like a, a sequential memoir, but in each chapter, I sort of take an aspect of my life and look at it both through my experience and sort of like the way that culture guided it. Um, so like I talk about my relationship to my dad through his favorite movie, or I talk about moving to LA through like entourage and the comeback as like <laughs> alternate versions of LA. Wait, what's the comeback? Oh, 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 oh yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, um. Um, Phoebe, why can't I think of an actual name? God damn it. Lisa Kudrow, sure, yes. Lisa Kudrow. Yeah, I'm also just remembering, speaking of Australia, last time we were in this seating configuration, you and I were talking about the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, yeah. And Twinsies and uh, Tu Wong Fu. You know, as time goes on, right I realize, like, Tu Wong Fu isn't that bad of a movie. At, at the time of our recording, you were on our side that it's a far inferior movie to yes, Priscilla. It, it but, is far inferior, but as time goes on, like, I appreciate it more. It seems very more caught me in a flip flop. No, no. I mean, I, but I also get Um, how, or what, what changed your mind about it? Um, it was it coming on Netflix and me getting to watch it a couple of times and realizing like at the end of the day, it's sweet, you know, it is a sweet movie. Yeah. It's just maybe a little simpler than Priscilla. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Listeners can go check out that episode of twinsies. Just Google twinsies or look it up wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, hear our breakdown on the dueling trio of road tripping drag queens from the early 90s 93 was it yes yeah we should get back to some science there is uh, another <laughs> maybe not the most exciting story but it is related to both australia and our listeners there's a shark story that uh our listener chris nelson said this comes out of my grad school advisor's lab and it's all about sharks, and I know you're Australians, you love your sharks. Mm-hmm. A Californian fish and wildlife pathologist, this is a Californian shark, has identified the microbial pathogen he thinks is responsible for killing thousands of sharks and rays in the San Francisco Bay between February and July. You used to live around San Francisco. That's true. I didn't know how many, ba- how many rays and sharks did you encounter in your time there back in my day there were almost no microbes but there were tons of raisin sharks we were always roasting them for dinner or you know well i remember the punchline used to serve shark and ray as (laughs) (laughs) one of the few comedy clubs in the country that had a mostly shark and ray based menu yeah yeah um like that poor bay nothing should have to live there I didn't realize there were thousands. And by the way, uh, if they were raisin sharks, I wouldn't be as scared. But there are sharks and ray. Like raisin sharks, <laughs> the least intimidating of all the sharks. Wrinkly, um, small. And sweet. So surprisingly sweet. But good as a snack. Le- leopard sharks and bat rays started washing up on beaches around the central part of the bay in early spring. By April, stranded or disoriented sharks were dying by the dozen. Most of the affected fish probably died and sank without being seen. But based on the number of strandings, CDFW senior fish pathologist Mark Okihiro estimates the toll at more than 1,000 leopard sharks, 200 to 500 bat rays, hundreds of striped bass, and dozens of smoothhound sharks, halibut, thornback rays, and guitarfish. I didn't I know guitarfish guitar is a thing. Okay, let's see what this looks like. You look up guitarfish yeah. while I continue with the story. <laughs> Unless you have a lead on guitarfish there, Guy. Uh, no, I, I only know bass fish. <laughs> um, uh, though I do, fish pathologist, I think, is a great pitch that we should probably take around town. You know? <laughs> What's that guy's name? It's uh, 
Mark Okihiro. We we license Mark Okihiro's life, and then it's just a guy who's constantly solving fish on fish crimes yeah. <laughs> in like the greater marine biome of the Bay Area. CSI Bay. Are his methods unconventional, and does oh, he get results in spite of that? I mean, well, he's got his partner who plays by the books. Right. They keep trying to take away his fish pathology badge. But yeah, he, keeps, he, keeps he doesn't right. play he's by right. the rules. Does he have uh, like some kind of like physical disability? Does he have a cane or like a, a affectation? No, uh, some kind? I think he's just he's an asshole, and he's always using um, uh, smears and um, li- like not the he's using the orange litmus paper, not the purple litmus paper. You know? Does the, does the episode open with some kind of marine based pun? Like, is there a sea life? <laughs> And then he puts on his fisherman's cap and it cuts to a song by the Who. I mean, no, it's pretty much just either an older Asian woman or a gay guy is by the ocean and then something washes up. And then, don't you know, and they suddenly have to put on their scuba equipment or hop in the bath, uh, bathy scape. <laughs> I think you could get a stunt casting as the mailman because it turns out early in the spring, volunteers with the Pelagic Shark Research Foundation, which is a conservation group based in Santa Cruz, collected several stranded sharks and mailed them to Okihiro, who mm. works in Southern California as a white sea bass hatchery inspector. Oh, do you think Okihiro is like a big parrot head? Do you think he's like a lives by the ocean, like Buffett fan, and <laughs> he's, he's just always coming off of a, a margarita drunk, and then they like shake him awake, give him this mailed shark so he can yeah, give this... Yeah, like, what, what is it? <laughs> I mean, he could hatchery inspect in his sleep, and he does most of the time. He's drunk, but oh, when he pulls it together. I so hope he listens to this. He cut the sharks open and found lesions all around the shark's brain. I wonder, because this, this says, by the way, the, the email from Chris says, this came out of my grad school advisor's lab. Chris Nelson, is your grad school advisor Mark Okahiro? Oh, my God. Oh, hang on. Or is it the person mentioned later? Here we go. Something was entering the sharks' noses, uh, climbing into their brains and eating away, causing the sharks to become disoriented and ultimately strand or die. But the cause remained elusive until Okuhiro extracted cerebrospinal fluid from several sharks and sent the vial, so this is another post, another mailing, to the lab of Joseph DeRisi, an expert on the genetics of infectious diseases at the University of California, San Francisco. See, I thought DeRisi and Okahiro were competitors, and I can't believe they're 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 working working together together now. I think Joseph Joseph is Chris's former lab boss. This is my guess. Hannah Retalak, an MD-PhD grad student in DeRisi's lab, generally focuses her research on the ways the Zika virus affects the human brain. But she said the lab has plenty of practice examining the genetic information in cerebrospinal fluid, and they're well-equipped to apply their techniques on behalf of ecologists when they can. Recently, she said, they investigated a frog die-off and a rabbit with an unusual tumor. This stuff writes itself. It's right <laughs> this to is- how- uh, yeah. All right, I would just like to say, in situations like this, you follow the money. And... Um, <laughs> Like, you look at the situation, fish coming ashore San Francisco Bay, get mailed down to Los Angeles. Oh, Mark Okahiro, he goes through them, takes their cerebrospinal fluid, mails it back up to San Francisco to be analyzed. I mean, much in the way that the CIA distributed crack in African-American communities in the <laughs> 80s, I think it is pretty clear that the federal post office, or maybe FedEx, 
are releasing all of these like nose things like in the San Francisco Bay just to like up their payday. And I, I honestly, uh, you've, you've said too much. You know, this is. A I think podcast. Mark Okahiro may be part of this conspiracy. He's not clean. This Forget con- it, Jake. It's Fisherman's Wharf. <laughs> Also, what's happening to all of that delicious lesion-laden fish that ends up in Southern California? Who's battering and frying that, you know? The good stuff at the punchline San Francisco. (laughs) We do have... um, We have snakes in our freezers and birds, says... uh, This is still Retalac. Maybe a polar bear. What do you mean, maybe a polar bear? How's the one... That's the one you're unsure about. Retalac took Okahiro's leopard shark samples and used a technique called next generation sequencing. That sounds like something that was made up by a lazy writer yep. to look at all the DNA and RNA in the fluid to see where it had come from. While 99% of the genetic material present was shark, she was able to extract and analyze the other 1%. Amongst the leftovers, one sequence of RNA stood out. She noted the sequence compared it against all known sequences in a database at the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Where's that looking? And found a match. A well-known fish-killing parasite called Miamiensis avidus. I'm very confident that in these animals, that's what that is, says Retlack. We have very good species-level identification at the molecular level. The RNA we see in there is quite specific to this species. I'm seeing if it's uh, named that because it was discovered in Miami. It's it was, a, yes. Is that it? It's a, a ciliate protozoan that's been tied to a number of deaths in hatchery or farm fish, especially in olive flounder in Japan and South Korea. Japan's second season. <laughs> <laughs> this time it's we, like the wire. Every season we evolve to a new part of the ocean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> every aspect of it is going to be the schools, then the newspapers. Yeah. I mean, it's possible Okahiro has a Japanese backstory that that's oh, what we get that's into. great. I don't want to judge based we on see names, his family. But yeah, likely. it's uh, yeah. Um, I just want to know: Are any of these parasites in jail? Like they're murdering left and right. What about enforcement? I know. Well, the problem is that they're doing all this in international waters. Yeah. So oh. How do, you get a, how do you get a jury of all these other ciliate protozoans? Fair. Fair. Um, we, like, from? when we were talking about this international water situation, we didn't talk about sea creatures, you know? Some of them are more vicious than people. This thing goes right to the bed. <laughs> yeah. It's deeper than the Mariana Trench. Uh, this is quite an animal story-heavy episode, but there's a, there's been some fun other animal stories. Oh, yeah, the dog one is pretty... Do yeah, we have do you an to- animal uh, uh, um, sorbet to cleanse the palate first, or just keep doing the animals? Well, I don't know. Well, do we have a non-animal? Do you have any good non-animal stories geared up and ready to go? Um, well, we could just talk about... Uh, we were talking about whether some drugs can still have potency after they've passed through your body. Yes. Because we talked about... Actually, this does tie to animals because um, three episodes ago, I think we talked about the cocaine levels found in eels in uh, in the UK. Wonderful. Yeah. And so uh, one of the articles said that it actually does affect their behavior. And I was like, wait, so is there still... And this would just be from, um, I guess, the human urine that from people who use cocaine. It wasn't like people dumping coke in the river. Uh, so then I was like, wait, I, can, can drugs still have, I guess I assume once you've processed a drug in your brain that whatever comes out of you doesn't have the efficacy of the original drug. But we had a listener write in about a yeah. specific psychedelic that is consumed that way. This is listener Conrad Berube, 
who is a senior integrated pest management officer at the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy in Nanaimo, British Columbia. And Whoa. apparently... Home of the Nanaimo bar. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there and eaten it. I mean, they talk about us in handguns. That's something that should not be allowed without a background check. They talk about what? Oh, it's just this snack from there that's essentially like pudding on fudge on crust. It's called Nanaimo? Nanaimo, yes. Na- Nanaimo which is a town or a city in British Columbia, and it has its own confectionery. How did you guys both know? I've never... I don't know. I, I toured there once. I was there, and they've, they're very proud of it. It's the first thing you see when you come out of the relatively small Nanaimo airport. Oh my god, I, I, I know these as something else entirely, I think. I think my it mom is, makes these. And it is she calls three layers, a wafer and coconut crumb base, custard-flavored butter icing in the middle, and a layer of chocolate ganache on the top. That's Oh, there's no peanut butter. I assume there's peanut butter in these pictures. Um, also, you should only eat that if you live in a cold part of Canada where your body constantly needs to be processing calories. Um, but wait, what was the science thing? I okay. already forgot. Oh, sorry, yes. Um, well, so there's a, there's a there's, drug... That- I, I think like every cold place has its own version of pure... Like, have you ever tried Scottish tablet? No, what is that? It's basically... It's sort of fudge, but without flavor. It's... <laughs> It's made. It's just hardtack for polar. It's sort of like if you want to eat sugar, but you don't have a spoon. (laughs) It's it's made from sugar, condensed milk, and butter, which is boiled to the soft ball ball stage and allowed to crystallize. Uh, Sometimes flavored with vanilla or whiskey, and sometimes has nut pieces added. uh, Mix sugar, fat, and a mixture of sugar and fat. Yeah, it's basically just everything unhealthy stirred together and congealed in a single. Square. That sounds amazing. I'm in. Okay, so uh, this listener who's from Nanaimo uh, said that our story reminded him of something he'd read about the use of the Amanita mushroom equated with a ritual drug called Soma in the Rig Veda. Yeah. You know what Rig Veda is? Yeah, it's like an ancient uh, like Hindu text, and the priest would like consume the Soma and then urinate, and then you are correct. the other people would consume the urine. Yep. Um, there were two forms of consumption to consume directly either by eating the dried mushroom or drinking its juices or two, yeah, take the urine of the person who has ingested it. Um, and I guess the scientific term for it is a muscaria consumption of the latter was first rediscovered by a Swedish army officer, Philip Johan von Strahlenberg, while a captive of the Russians in Siberia. His observation of this event was published in 1730. This is the only plant that is capable of being passed through the digestive system and maintains its psychotropic properties. Uh, Wasson also believed that there is an apparent function in the urine drinking ceremony. In modern experience, the A. muscaria causes nausea when consumed due to the unidentified toxins that occur in this species. It is possible that passing soma through the digestive tract eliminates the nausea-causing metabolite. Okay, so... So maybe there's an actual purpose for it. But then the first person who does it has to deal with that. I that's guess, beautiful be... and Christian that like the priest is like, I'll take all of this on my liver and then you guys yeah. have the good time. I'll take the nausea. You just get the just pure psychotropic <laughs> effect. And hopefully that's also his fetish. That's so a win-win. Uh, usage of A. muscaria this, in Siberia continued until the 16th and 17th century, but was discontinued in favor of alcohol, which was introduced by the Russians. So... Um. So yeah, some things can still be active after passing through your your gut. I prefer to drink piss for its own sake. Right. <laughs> so, it doesn't need gussying up. <laughs> the hallucinogenic indoles, it could, this is the quote, it contained, entered the stomach, but a great many more entered the kidneys and were later discharged with the urine. 
clean-minded classical scholars have until now shut their eyes to the possibility that the Vedic hymn writer may have meant exactly what he said with, quote, the great gods piss out together the lovely Soma, end quote. Well, um, it's like kind of an old school thing, but like urine drinking is a tradition in Hinduism. One of the... Like in the same way that our like presidents try to seem like hokey and down to earth by like wooden bush with like clear brush and stuff. Um, there was uh, a Indian prime minister who was Moraji Desai and it was just like, yes, I drink two glasses of urine every day. Uh, and he lived to be like 102. So maybe he knows what he's talking about. Sorry, he drinks his own? Whose urine is he drink? Yes. He would like every day just, I assume, piss in a glass and then um, he would like drink his own urine. Are we and thinking like, are we talking like morning piss, which is like, yeah, I believe it was his morning yeah. piss yeah. because that has, you know, that has the whole night's work in it. <laughs> I mean, I would see, I could see like after you've like chugged a bunch of water. I mean, if you had to pick a time of day, it's, yes. it's just not morning. It's well, it depends on how asparagus heavy a diet you're on. <sighs> Look, I'm a huge fan of Maranji Desai, and every time I read about him, I'm like, it worked. Like, how can I argue with this? Well, so, it's, then you get into like anecdotes. Yeah, it's like the person who has the uncle who lived to be 110, smoking 10 packs a day. And, yes, uh, that this quote continues by the way yet it has been known for at least two centuries that the Korjaks do so after drinking the mushroom juice and that their friends strain the urine through wool and after drinking it enjoy the same excesses and then another quote to this day the Tunjusic Tungusic consume the Amin- Amanita muscaria mushroom ethnoge- oh, sorry ethiogenically Entheo. entheogenically either raw or distilled in the urine of their reindeer Oh, they got tripping reindeer that deal with the nausea. Uh, but those reindeer kidneys would fuck you up, you know. If like you like slaughtered the reindeer and ate the kidneys, oh, it's just full of all the yeah, all the bad stuff. stuff. So yeah, I guess just have you tried? I I have tried, I now forget the name of the coffee, and we've talked about it once oh, a while ago. Yeah, this. the copa oh, copa is the name of the animal the, that, that yeah the out, the I civet think. cats that yeah the, yeah. I have never. It was fine. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I don't same, think yeah. it's worth keeping those animals in cages and force feeding them coffee beans. How is it Wait, distinctive? I thought that they choose to eat them of their own. They do. Well, they do originally, but I'm pretty sure the stuff we had when barley was. I, I don't know how ethically it was obtained because right. it's now a tourist thing. Yeah. Wait, wait. Sorry, you did it in Bali. Yeah. Was it in that town where all the yoga stuff is? No, that's where I had it. Like near the town that has the uh, monkey uh, place. <laughs> I don't remember the names of places I went to in Bali. What did it taste like? It was it was coffee. It was good. I mean, but I mean, I don't think I would have paid U.S. I think there it was like ten or fifteen dollars a cup instead of like wh- I don't know what what is it here. I'm guessing way more than that. Uh, retail price is up to seven hundred dollars per kilogram. Um, but I don't think that the Kopi Luwak or Civets or whatever the animal's called, they, they didn't look that unhappy the place I went. I don't know. I like the idea of buying it by the kilogram because you really need to make a pot every day. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just... It's the only coffee I can drink. <laughs> coffee that hasn't filtered through a small mammal. Are they mammals? They are. Um... It's just it's too harsh. I will not drink coffee that where the bean has not been shat out. I mean, I do like that it's decadent. 
It's um, since 2008, the animal, the Asian palm civet, uh, is IUCN red listed as least concern as it is tolerant of a broad range of habitats. So if you're worried, I guess it's a pretty resilient animal. Um, yeah, what is the actual group that it belongs to? Okay. It is a mammal. It's like, I think it's related to like weasels. The phylum is chordata. Oh, that's too high up. We need to go lower down to get more. Um, suborder. Yeah, cat-like. Oh yeah, Filifornia. Oh, okay. okay. So yeah, yeah. they're that suborder. close to cats. Closer to cats, evidently. And then the family includes actually nothing else that I've heard of in the family of Viveridae. Viveridae. Um, just other things called civets, I guess. But yeah, sort of cat-like. But they look kind of raccoony. They could look kind of monkey. They look kind of sh- like giant sugar gliders. This has been enough civet talk, probably. Yeah, for one episode. But they are they are related. They are related to cats, hyenas, mongooses, and civets, and related taxa. There we go. How did we get... Oh, yeah, because they eat, uh, not drugs, but uh, coffee beans. Other animals in the Viveridae are... Nope, can't find it. I know. That's, I, could, I hadn't heard of any other animals in that same family, so... But yeah, Filifornia, they're cat-like. And I guess, yeah, it's just going to be a heavy on the animals episode, because we also got a very... A uh, fun, not at all depressing story from this listener. Is a, this is the dog one? Yeah. Andrew, I don't see his last name here. but I'll um, find it while you look okay. it up. Brain scans reveal what dogs really think of us. Um, in the 30,000 years humans and dogs have lived together, man's best friend has only become a more popular and beloved pet. Andrew McKay. Andrew, Andrew McKay. It's from Andrew McKay. Thank you, Andrew. Um, Today, dogs are a fixture in almost 50% of American households. That's... Um, is that, uh, is that what you would have guessed? I have no idea. I don't think I would have guessed that high. I don't know why. Uh, from the way dogs thump their tails, invade our laps, and steal our pillows, it certainly seems like they love us back, but since dogs can't tell us what's going on inside their furry heads, can we ever be sure? Actually, yes. Thanks to recent developments in brain imaging technology, we're starting to get a better picture of the happenings inside the canine cranium. That's right, scientists are actually studying the dog's brains. Uh, what the studies show is welcome news for all dog owners. Not only do, do dogs seem to love us back, they actually see us as their family. It turns out that dogs rely on humans more than they do their own kind for affection, protection, and everything in between. The most direct dog brain-based evidence that they are hopelessly devoted to humans comes from a recent neuroimaging study from about odor processing in the dog brain. Animal cognition experts at Emory University trained dogs to lie still in an, in an MRI machine and used fMRI to decrease, to, I'm sorry, to measure their neural responses to the smell of people and dogs. I can't believe, like, how long do you have to lay still for it? You did it, Matt, right? I mean, yeah. How long do you have to be? It's, well, I don't know how they do it, because, yeah, when you're doing it, when I did that experiment that we talked about a few episodes ago, it was now. Yeah. Um, actually, I guess it was about six or seven episodes ago now. But, yeah, you have to sit still for sort of 20 minutes or so. And that's reasonable for you to do, but you're a very good boy. I am. And like some of these dogs. I'm very well behaved. Yeah. How many treats were required to keep you still? I, I actually, it was now, it was the promise of treats because I've been so well trained by now. <laughs> 
Well, they, used to have, they used to just give me the treats, and now they just promise it. I mean, the essence of this study is saying that domestication is gaslighting, uh, oh, convincing Stockholm syndrome animals. Yes, that you're more their friend than the people who or the animals that have the same interests as them. And I just wonder if it's only those, for lack of a better term, cock dogs oh, who are dogs. Yeah, sure. willing to lay there for a half hour. We're like. Real dogs would like bite you <laughs> and say fuck you like and then try to urinate on the MRI machine. That's true. Uh, so they. The Aurea Mir episode, by the way, was the one where I went into the MRI and it's episode 292. What was it for? So he's a. He, he, I, you might have met Ori. He's, he's a comic, but oh, he's also a neuroscientist and he hangs around flappers quite a bit and various other clubs. But he was doing an experiment where he wanted for his grad project, I think it was, where he wanted to find out what parts of the brain are involved in generating humor. Okay. So he put a selection of professional comics and improvisers and then amateur comics and then just lay people, just lab other like grad students and lab people in an MRI machine and made us try to come up with captions to <laughs> New Yorker cartoons. <laughs> so that was... The ultimate test of comedy. The ultimate test of generating humor. And we talked about this on the show, but the, the, the two controls they had, was depending on what lights lit up, you either had to try and think of a funny caption or try and think of a non-funny caption. So something that's just a pretty direct description of like, oh, thank you for the cup of coffee or whatever. Yeah. And, then, and then, or try to think of nothing at all. So that way they could compare which parts of your brain showed more activity when you were thinking of any kind of caption and then which showed more activity when you were specifically trying to generate humor. Why not hashtag games? Like, yeah. why not golden age of at midnight hashtag games, I you think, know? I think this... Everybody on Twitter on FMRI. You know what? This experiment, because we only had just had him on the show, but we I did that experiment a while ago and it was, I think, before at midnight was that big a thing. But oh, that really? Maybe. No, I mean, New Yorker cartoons is, is so relatable and academics reading would be like, yes, I know what that is. That's wonderful. That's I would be fascinated to know what he learned. But it was, uh, oh, listen back to the episode because he talks about which bits of the brain specifically lit up and and also which bits, I, I'm now struggling to remember exactly. I have to go back to the episode myself, but Some, the, bit, it's more, the more professional, the more experienced you are as a comic, the more subconscious the more i guess it wasn't about as much what was firing as what wasn't firing because like the governor sort of wasn't firing that was yeah I, I guess sort of the same thing i think they find similar things in athletes where where they talk about like the flow state or whatever the more oh that's wonderful the the more experience you are at an activity the less you're thinking i guess it was you know any of us you know when you first learn to drive you're like all right wheel stick mirror and everything and then and then the more you do it, the more it gets pushed from that very conscious part of your brain to yeah. the less conscious part of your brain. And that's, I think, what he found with human generation as well. Like the more experienced comics, the more those parts of the brains were what was firing when you were trying to generate humor. Do you, like the way that sometimes bits just like slide together when you're not thinking about them right. is always really interesting. And, and the way as a comic, once you get to a certain point, Sometimes you can sort of be in a bit, but also thinking about what you're going to do yeah, next, or yeah. which sometimes to the detriment of the bit. Sometimes you lose the feeling yeah. in the moment, and then sometimes right. it's actually just really it's useful to be able to 
briefly go on autopilot where you think about what the next thing is. But like when you're doing crowd work and planning at the same time, that's always like, let's hope this doesn't fall apart. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing that I think can only come with experience because you suddenly go, what's going on there? Your brain would theoretically be doing a lot, but because you've had so much practice at it, a lot of a lot of it's been pushed from yeah. the heavy processing part of your brain into the automatic parts of your brain. And so, and that then enables you to be riffing with someone on the front row while at the same time thinking, all right, what's the bit of material I want to close on? How do I, how do I somehow segue from this bit of nonsense that I'm currently doing with this person in the room to that subject? That's wonderful. I need to listen to that. It's, but I think you're right, though. I would be interested to do because I I didn't find coming up with captions that easy. I, yeah. I I would I would definitely be interested to do it with like a hashtagging. Well, I mean, the thing is, I was saying it just as a joke, but also we are more trained to hashtag games and stuff like that, where like a New Yorker cartoon isn't exactly what we do, and I think we would be more likely to be like, but that's not what New Yorker cartoons are, you yeah. know? Well, I, I remember. A few years ago, I wrote on this on Comedy Knockout, which is a similar, yeah, it's a True TV's panel comedy panel show. Yes, it's, it's very New Yorker, yeah. And it will, well, the whole there were different rounds, and you, we had to write funny answers for the, to help the contestants. And most of the rounds were verbal, and one or two of them were visual. Every so often, we would have a round in an episode that was, you know, a funny picture of the people on the panel, and we had to write punchlines to the picture. And I found those rounds so much harder to write punchlines for than the ones that were like 20 funny answers to this setup. Like, here's a verbal setup, give us one verbal setup, give us 20 punchlines to this go. And I could knock those out all day long. But when it was like, here's a here's a picture of some crazy stuff happening, write a write 20 punchlines to that. That would take a while. And you're not doing that on stage six nights a week. And yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm more verbal than visual in my... Yeah, it's like when it comes to... I'm not a visual thinker. I can have one or two ideas that are like ideas, but nothing instinctual is going to happen. Right. Yeah, I, so I, th- I think I would... I'd be really interested to know how, how... Now you said that, I would love to go back into that MRI, which costs hundreds of thousands to run that experiment, I think. I think you need a grant. And do something, but you kind of do an autopilot as opposed do, to... Do something yeah. that takes a lot less effort for me, or at least yeah. comes a lot quicker to me yeah. comedically, which is exactly what you said, yeah. which is writing punchlines or writing... Well, writing punchlines to you was uh, analogous to odors for these dogs. <laughs> uh, because... Um, yeah, because dogs navigate the world through their noses, the way they process smell offers a lot of potential insight into social behavior. So yeah, they presented them to different uh, smells, like smells of people and dogs, both familiar and unknown. And the scientists found the dog owner's aroma actually sparked activation in their reward center of their brains called the caudate nucleus. Of all the wafting smells to take in, dogs actually prioritized the hint of humans over anything or anyone else. These results jibe with other canine neuro- neuroimaging research. In Budapest, researchers at Iotvas Lorand University studied canine brain activity in response to different human and dog sounds, including voices, barks, and the meaningful grunts and sighs both species emit. This is why dogs must never acquire access to treats, because <laughs> if they could distribute treats themselves, then they would be able to form into a cohesive unit and overthrow our country. <laughs> they are they are only in half of homes, but 
they have knives in their mouth and on their feet. Sounds very Marxist uh, dictatorship of the proletariat or something, or uh, I don't know what. The- <laughs> yeah, I, I saw I saw that telemarketing movie two days ago. Oh, is it good? Boost Riley? The-, uh, the first half of it is so good, and the second half of it is like weird and good. I heard it's sort of Michelle Gondry-ish with the magical realism or something. Is that I don't know who Michelle Gondry is. Uh, like uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh yes, yes, it really yeah. it is. It's like it's it's also like fun and big. Okay, as I think his movies are, I like his stuff. We tried to see it the other day, but we left too late and we missed it. And then we saw Eighth Grade instead, which is very good. Oh, what's that about? That's Bo Burnham's film. Oh, and it's uh, about a girl navigating eighth grade, the end of eighth grade. Cool. Uh, the end of middle school. Yeah. Did he write it or? He wrote and directed it. Interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, so in Budapest, they, they studied um, dogs' response to sounds. And among the surprising findings, they revealed uh, marked similarities in the way dog and human brains process emotionally laden vocal sounds. Researchers found that happy sounds in particular light up the auditory cortex in both species. This commonality speaks to the uniquely strong communication system underlying the human-dog bond. Uh, in short, dogs don't just seem to pick up on our subtle mood changes. They're actually physically wired to pick up on them. After I came out of the closet, my mother would always insist that her dog, Bentley, um, understood how upset I was making her, and that would make <laughs> Bentley upset. She would say, listen, Bentley is crying. Because she's stop making, like that. <laughs> stop making me talk about your gayness. <laughs> how long did it take for her to... Uh... Should the listeners have to get to the book to hear it? Uh, Bentley passed before that oh, happened. No. And then I think she got Zev, who was just able to deal with it. Oh, okay. But I mean, when did, when was your mother okay with it? I mean, Still not to this we're day. hoping like 20, 2024 might be a good year for her. No, she's she's much better now. Okay. I, I'd like to do this story. We've got some people to thank first. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let's. we got some donors to thank. And... I'd like to do that just before we get it. People, a lot of people have gone to probablyscience.com and clicked on the donation button. So thank you to Sean Gordon, Bry- Bryson Rhodes. Okay, we got an email telling us which of the pronunciations is correct, and now I can't find I it. I forgot, but he did set up the, the regular donation, so we must have gotten it right. We, one, one of us of got it right for yeah. Oran Malafont or Mal- Malafont or, Ma- or Malafont or whichever one it was. I'll go back to it and find it. And David Worth, thank you very much. Peter Long, Destruction Lane. And thank you for the one-off donation from, wow. Algirdas Kaupelis from Lithuania. A Lithuanian le- listener saying... Some 300 episodes. Saying 300 episodes more. And, oh, and also, by the way, I've consistently mispronounced one of our donors. So thank you, uh, Alexander uh, Jakubson, rather than Jacobson, which is what I keep saying. Thank you. Well, I think he just set up... I think last episode was his first donation, so I think he's okay. forgiven, but yeah. Well, there we go. Well, thank you either way. I There's the correction. And I'm going to find the Oliphant one, because apparently it was Welsh who saw that one coming. Which which would imply that the T wouldn't be silent? I don't... Welsh is one of those mystery things, uh, language-wise, right? Is that one of the ones that's really counterintuitive? Like, is Rafe Fiennes, is that Welsh, but you don't say Ralph for some reason? Where is he from? I don't know. You look up Ray Fiennes while I try and find... <laughs> oh, by the way, Guitar Fish from earlier. It was a ray. It was a kind of ray. Sort of guitar-shaped. Ah, here we go. Mallet. Everyone from Wales is either named Daffod or Thwithen. <laughs> Thwithen. I mean, uh, that is true. Is Rafe Fiennes actually pronounced Rafe, or is everyone saying Ray, and I'm hearing the F from his last name and assuming that it's... No, it is pronounced Rafe. Rafe. The L is just silent. Yes. I only know that from Gilbert and Sullivan. 
Refrextraw. That was me singing. It's bad. Oh. So this is it was it's a Welsh name that originates in France from mal enfant, which means a poorly or sick child. What oh. a weird l- surname mm. to have. That then goes via Wales, Wales and becomes Malifant. All right. If there is an aspect of medieval European behavior that we really need to get back on top of, it's naming people Libertard um, and Posthumous. Like naming, okay, your dad died before you were born. Your name's Posthumous. You just don't get another option. That was a thing in, in what era? Like, like Middle Ages kind of thing. You just get named... Because you can't take someone's name if they aren't alive when you're born, kind of? I don't know if it happened universally. I may be taking one Shakespeare play and extrapolating this to just a cultural trend. (laughs) But, like, there'd be a toddler growing up whose name is Posthumous who's got the nickname Posty or something. I know. It seems fun to me, but also, wouldn't it be cool? uh, This is my son. His name is... Sierra Labatard. Uh, his wife. What his, is that one referred to? The bastard. Oh, oh, okay. I thought it was like liberty related or something. No. Or libtard. Or... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That the would bastard. be names now if it was still named that way, like cuck. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's fucking hilarious that such a old, such a fucking like Shakespearean. Or like Chaucerian word as cuckold is somehow in I know all of our consciousness in 2018. It's so fucking strange to me. I mean, I do find it exciting when things that are footnotes in your Shakespeare enter the popular culture, like when ducats happened. Oh, I was like, thank God! Like, I I love treating tenth grade as popular culture. Yeah. Tenth grade is popular culture. We all experienced a Punnett square at some point in time. Oh, what? <laughs> Those squares where you figure out genetics—that's what they're called, isn't it? Oh, yeah. oh okay. I forgot. Yes, what they were when you'd get like uh, capitals and lowercases for dumb yes, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I totally, if one of those were in front of me right now, I would be at a loss. As what kind of scientist were you? I forget. Electrical engineer. Okay. It's really a math major almost is what it was. I'm not very handy. Engineers are supposed to be good tinkerers and I was never very hands-on. Do you know when I was most dazzled by Matt Kirshen? Mm-hmm. Or no, I don't. Uh, when I found out, when I found out that he had s- like sit for the the Cambridge math tripos. Is that how you say tripos. it? Tripos. I was like, you were officially in competition to be the smartest man in Britain. Like, that's very exciting. And I fell very short of the mark. But this still. Is like a Hogwarts tribunal thing but you still. guys have to do? No, it's absolutely true. Can I tell the story of Arabella What's-Her-Name? I don't know what the story is you're about to tell. Okay. So, like, in the 1870s, the British upper class were like, maybe we should educate women. And they were like, no, not really. So they started first letting women just sort of, like, visit classes, and then they created a couple of colleges where they could pretend go to college. But it came this thing that, like, the liberal cause was we have to get a woman who wins the math tri- who like comes out is top wrangler at the math tripos uh and so this like liberal education advocate and her husband there were like a couple of women who like did well and then they raised their daughter essentially that was her only purpose in life uh and then she went and she sat for it and because she like didn't know what you were or weren't supposed to do she answered way more way more effectively than everybody else knew that like you're supposed to do three or four of the questions and this is like math it's physics 
six. It's all of that. And she was doing like six or seven and mad at herself that she didn't get to the last ones. Uh, and then she did not formally come in first. She came in above first because some man was officially first. And then she had no career because what were you supposed to do as the smartest person in Britain who was a woman in like 1880 or whatever? What's her name again? This is fascinating. Has I'm trying to find written a book it. about her. I, I have found though. Yeah, God, I've forgotten all this nonsense. So the, 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 the senior wrangler is the person who comes top in the mathematics trifos in the final year. Um, I thought you were joking, joking top, about calling it a wrangler guy. That's top great. marks. Top marks in it doesn't did not always guarantee the senior wrangler success in life. The exams were largely a test of speed and applying familiar rules. And some of the mo- this is according to the Wikipedia article. And that's some of all the most- I want out of a standardized test. <laughs> some of the most original and inventive students did not come top of their class. Bragg was third. Hardy was fourth. Sedgwick fifth. Malthus was ninth. Bertrand Russell was seventh, and Keynes was twelfth. Wow, Jesus! And Klaus Roth was not even a wrangler. Joan Clark who helped break the Nazi Enigma code at Bletchley Park, was a wrangler in Cambridge and earned a double first, though she was prevented from receiving a full degree based on the university's policy of awarding degrees only to men. This was a later discrimination. That policy was only abandoned in 1948. The present astronomer royal, Martin Rees, a wrangler, would go on to become one of the top leading scientists. Uh, I'm seeing someone named Ruth Hendry as being possibly the first official female winner and this is 92 i don't yeah that's not it she's she's probably a link down at the bottom i want to say that her name was arabella something or other but i could be remembering that wrong so i'd forgotten all this the second and third class are are called senior opt teams or opt times and junior opt times and division one and two is what the two one and two i got a two two that's what it is called in standard what does that mean so British degrees are it goes first two one two two third ordinary pass fail, but they're like like they're much harder than Amer- America, right? I don't know. I mean, you you specialize. We've talked about this a while back, but in British education, you specialize a lot quicker. Yeah. So by the time you by the time you've left secondary school, aged eighteen, you have narrowed it down to three or four subjects and by the time you go to university you apply to a university to do a specific course so you apply to birmingham to read history or you go do i want to do uh, french literature at bristol or whatever so you've you've picked what your in america what would be called your major and you don't have a minor either you just pick what your major is and you just do that there's no other courses you you do you don't have to do a certain sprinkling of humanities or arts or sciences or whatever. You just do your course. You just focus. Know your place. Yeah. You are not a general uh, person who thinks about things. You're a cog in a machine. You guys, I found our our girl. Okay. I mean, our woman. What's her name? Philippa Fawcett. Okay, yes. That sounds... Born in 1868. uh, Lived until 1948. Um, She was educated at Bedford College, London, now Royal Holloway, and Newnham Newnham College. Cambridge that was the which had been co-founded by her mother that was one of well I think still is one of the two all-women colleges in Cambridge Girton and Newnham uh so, no Girton is oh Girton's now all, oh uh it's co-ed it's um it used to be Newnham and Newhall when I was there but they've renamed one of them now and I can't remember what they've renamed it to I after like a lady of note of the recent past that's exactly what it is 
Her score was 13% higher than the second highest, but of course, as you said, she did not receive the title of Senior Wrangler, as only men were then ranked and women were listed separately. Um, when the women's list was announced, Fawcett was described as, quote, above the Senior Wrangler. <laughs> no woman was officially awarded the first position until Ruth Hendry in 1992. Coming amidst the women's suffrage movement, Fawcett's feet gathered worldwide media coverage, spurring much discussion about women's capacities and rights. The lead story in The Telegraph the following day, and this, again, this is 1890 said, once again, has woman demonstrated her superiority in the face of an incredulous and somewhat unsympathetic world. And now the last trench has been carried by Amazonian assault. <laughs> and the whole citadel of learning lies open and defenseless before the victorious students of Newnham and Girton. There is no longer any field of learning in which the lady student does not excel. 1890. I think there's something so interesting about the way that... <laughs> discrimination shifts in a situation like that, that there was a hundred year gap between <laughs> um, Philippa and this next woman. And I think it is that interesting thing of when you're not allowed, you're just trying to break through the allowed. But then the interesting way is that you can be allowed in, but not fully in. Does that make sense to you? Oh, wait, is this, um, are you making reference to that? Do you listen to revisionist history? The Malcolm Gladwell podcast? No. There was an episode about a moral, um, moral licensing uh-huh. and this is a little bit different because they didn't actually give it to her but um, this sort of idea that like and this happened before the 2016 election but I, th- I think the reason he talked about it was he sort of thought that the US had elected Barack Obama gave itself a little pat in the back and they were like oh we did our good deed we had our one token non-white president and we can just go right back to being because he gave historical precedent of some other uh, barrier that was broken and then not broken again forever because I was like oh we did our thing we did the one thing we're supposed to do and well gave it. it's it's more similar to the way that like um, immediately after the Civil War black people got elected to a bunch of public offices and then it, we had to sort of like change the way like it was a, a cocktail of race blind laws that affected black people or race inclusive laws that affected black people but also just sort of social stuff of like oh well we'll just go and set their houses on fire now that's how we'll stop them from getting elected or then come 1965 when you know black people are more able to vote it's like oh we'll start incarcerating them left and right so that they're all felons or you know other things like that and i just think with with something like this um, you just a system finds more subtle ways of saying you're not a real mathematician mm-hmm. where like Philippa Fawcett knew exactly where the rule was that said you're not a real mathematician um, and it, it took a hundred years before Ruth what's her name was able to like prove herself a real mathematician I just like it starts getting gross and subtle yeah, you know yeah. I'm surprised uh, no one's made a movie about this woman. By the way, new. Who- I mean, it's a boring story. I I've thought about it. I've played it left and right <laughs> in my head. <laughs> by the way, Newhall got renamed Murray Edwards College. You're exactly right. It was named after a. It apparently was founded without a significant endowment, and then it got a donation of 30 million by alumna Ross Edwards and her husband Steve Edwards, and also so it was named after her and the first president, Dame Rosemary Murray who was also the first female vice chancellor of the university. So there we go. That's lovely. That's why it's now called that. Um, Since I have railroaded things to be talking about British education, (laughs) can I talk about my favorite thing from British education? Please. It's University Challenge, their game show, the purpose of which is just to see whether poor kids... Like, it it basically is just serving up poor kids to be eaten alive by kids from Oxford and Cambridge. (laughs) 
and then they have tea. Uh, like usually by like the quarterfinals, it's pretty much just colleges from Oxford and Cambridge. Also, the really funny thing of it the, when they're introducing everybody, they're like, "Oh, this is the team from like Bristol College," and it's like tens of thousands of people. And then this is you know. Um, uh, uh, Trinity College, Cambridge, with 3,000 people. Or so, I mean, th- I don't know if that's... But, like, some of these schools are so fucking tiny, but because they are just selecting from the best of the best, their university challenge teams are amazing. And then those poor children from Durham just get their asses handed it, to them. It is, although I, I will also say, statistically, the other reason why Oxford and Cambridge gets overrepresented in university challenge is because... Because it's made up, they're made up of colleges, and each college can enter its own team. There's just a shitload more potential teams that can end up in the final. Like, yeah, there's just I, wait, a lot more. Because most universities don't have as many colleges as Oxford. No, and most Cambridge most do. universities only. I think Oxford, Cambridge, and Durham, and maybe one or two others are collegiate, and every, where it's sort of split into colleges. Oh, I see. Okay. So Manchester University, which, like you said, has thousands of students per year. Just, just enters. The they can still only enter one team of four people per year, so it's just like ah, who wants to enter? So Manchester only has one shot of getting in the final, whereas Oxford has I don't know how many of the colleges enter, but let's say fifteen. They have fifteen potential f- teams that can end. That can. But that, wouldn't the argument there, if they have a good system of selecting the teams, be that, that Manchester would have the four best students in the whole? Yeah, so they do fine. They do well, but again, but also there was a selection process before that where everyone who had the option of going to Cambridge or Oxford right. did. Because it's also free. We always forget that it's free. Wait, what? No, it's not anymore. Oh, it's not? It's, it's not anymore, but it's and it's getting more and more expensive. And it has. So like, how much is it? Still not a patch on American system, but it's getting there. It's getting up oh. there. But, um, but the other teams that always do well, there's always a couple of mature student teams and open university always does well which is like a correspondence yes really national course because it's because it's all people it it's who all people in like more... their 30s and 40s and older who love just, game shows too much and are and, and who have jobs but are interested in things enough to go i'm gonna do another degree as a correspondence course so that means they just have a wealth of trivia and a wealth of and a wealth of knowledge because this is more trivia based than it is like studies i mean it, it's it, it's okay it's it's uh, pure it's a pure trivia show okay. so um, it's it's like a really pure the, trivia game so show. Living longer and being a curious person could give you an advantage because you've just gotten more information stuffed into it's, your head. Yeah, and, ju- and just being the kind of person, being just also again, it's self-selecting. It's the kind of person who would yeah. choose later in life to do another degree yeah. or do their first degree. But mm-hmm. whatever it is, it's someone who has a very that kind of curious, wants to learn lots of stuff right. type of brain. I love watching University Challenge with anyone from Los Angeles because when it's over, they're always like, wait, it's over? Like, we're, <laughs> we're from a TV-producing town. We're like, no, and then there's a climactic thing or they climb a wall or they have where's 60 the, seconds. Where's the crane shot? Where the camera's yes. shooting? Like, yeah. when, when are the lights supposed to move? <laughs> it just happens for a while and then it stops. And at that point, the person that side with the most numbers of points wins. It's wonderful. Is there a way to watch? I guess YouTube probably? It's on YouTube and like, it's God bless the people who are just every week uploading them. Uh, the two British shows that I go to YouTube for and don't know who is doing this but love them so much are that and Come Dine With Me, the competitive dinner party show. <laughs> Of which there are over 1,600 episodes. Holy shit. Are there that many? I've never heard of Yes. That. It's because I think there's a daytime one where they break it up to like each day is one dinner party. Yep. And then they have, there's like a, 
Uh, there's also celebrity versions. That why isn't that on the list? I was on the Wikipedia page for shows with the most episodes. Maybe it was subdivided by scripted or something. Yeah, um, that's when I found out about Captain Video and his Rangers. Do you guys know about this? No. Show? Oh my god! I I really w- it's it was a show that had I don't know five thousand episodes or something because it was made every day. But it was uh, they taped over their own whatever the format it was recorded on, so it's all lost to time. But they had to fill half an hour of time each day. And like they only had 22 minutes of written material. So at a certain time, Captain Video would say, let's see what's happening with our agents embedded uh, on Earth. And it would cut to cowboy movie footage for eight minutes. It was unrelated to Captain Video. <laughs> That's great. It's really, it's worth looking up some Captain Video. There is some on YouTube, but like most of it, Captain Video so and his Video Rangers. Watch TV in the middle of the, in the middle TV of it, yeah. show. They just had to fill, um, so it had a total of uh, 1,537 episodes. I've got to tell you right now, guys. Brandon, if you don't already watch this, you should watch Only Connect as well. Oh, uh, Louis Vertel has been telling me how much I should watch Only Connect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I need to watch it. I have not. I don't like the fact that they're nonverbal, I, but I need to watch it enough to fall in love. Because it's just like it shows you some sort of structure and you have to figure it out, right? No, it's... it's f- well, there's four rounds, but each round is some variant of... You know the rounds in a trivia, in a bar trivia, which is find the connection? Oh, yes. I do love those. It's basically every round is a version of that. So the first round is straight up. You just get, it's what's the connection between these four things, but you get them one at a time, and the earlier you buzz in, the more points you get. And then the second round is, it's the same, but it's a sequence rather than a straight connection. So you have to predict what the fourth one is in the sequence. Oh, that's fine. So again, you have to work out the connection, and some of them are verbal, and some of them are fact-based, and some of them are mathematical like lewis tried really hard to pitch that i think with him as host and everybody was just like america's dumb we don't want that to be fair this show only exists because it's on bbc4 which is sort of sort of like the p the equivalent in america would be like if pbs had a side channel that was watched by far fewer people Uh, okay PBS and and uh, Bravo before it became the current iteration of yeah. Bravo. God, it remember had, like, that Bravo? That's so strange, right? That was a thing. Uh, uh, opera would be on TV. The best thing about oh, uh, uh, one time for Billy on the Street, we had to create a game, and it was old Bravo or new Bravo. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Um, but the the best thing about watching Come Dine With Me is it still has the commercials in it, and you know how here in America we watch commercials and we're like, oh. That is Brian Husky, or that is like yeah. some guy who is our friend. Those people are still on the commercial. <laughs> what era was this? Being, would come time with me being made now. Still, it is yeah, a, it is an ongoing no, show. They're fucking the one from two days ago is on YouTube, waiting for you. The fights that these people are having are ripped from the headlines. There, there is one clip that went viral where the guy who lost dressed down his fellow competitors at the end it's and wonderful those people are one. so mean to each other <laughs> and people tactically vote because they have to rate each other's dinner when they drive in the taxi on the way home from it oh okay i got upset so again the shows that our listeners should go check out come dine with me only only connect only connect right? and uh, college challenge university challenge, university challenge. University wasn't, challenge. there was an american version of that wasn't there wasn't it called like the college bowl or something like yes that? um it was a television program for a period of time and there was still competition uh, the University of Minnesota team that I was on came in third in like 99 or something like that, but it stopped being a TV show like in the 70s or something. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, I thought I heard of it too, too, but I was like, why wouldn't I have known people who were on the 
University yeah, Challenge has been around for... There's an episode of The Young Ones that parodies University Challenge. There's a rom-com about it. It's called, like, Starter for Ten or something like that. Oh, that's right. And I watched it really wanting to be excited, and it was terrible. I vaguely remember that happening and then disappearing very quickly. I need to go back and watch The Young Ones again. Uh, we are... We're pretty much out of time. I yeah, was going to do... Uh, Justin Perrault sent in a story we'll do this next week or, or just we'll link to it so you can read it about how Stanford Prison Experiment might be bullshit oh yeah we should talk about that next week I think it's really interesting yeah yeah uh, yeah new paper let's might be bullshit let's, let's do that as a teaser for next week we're going to mm-hmm. talk about that next week Guy Branham thank you for having me where can our listeners find out about you and everything you do and specifically your new book well a great way of learning about me would be going to the Amazon page or the Barnes and Noble page or any page for My Life as a Goddess available July 31st wherever books are sold and pre-ordering and then you get the book and then you learn all about me uh, but also they can listen to my podcast Pop Rocket or they can follow me on social media at Guy Branham I almost never Instagram I mostly just use it to watch hotter people than me be hot <laughs> That's what it's for. Go and find Guy and buy his book. He's a delight. I'm looking forward to reading it. I can't wait for it. Will you still tell me what the deal with the Stanford prison experiment is, but after we have stopped podcasting? I will do that. And listeners, I promise you we'll do that now. I've got opinions. First story next week. I've got opinions, yeah. And then we'll watch Only Connect tonight. As always... Uh, you can email us probablyscience at gmail.com you can tweet us at probablyscience you can find Guy at Guy Branham yes and us individually at Andy T. Wood and at mm-hmm. Matt Kirshen write nice things about us on iTunes spread the word donate if you're able to donate and do all those kind of good things uh, we will see you next week thank you so much listeners yep bye bye bye